This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy Book 3 The Fascination 1. My Mind to Me a Kingdom Is in Klim Yobright's face could be dimly seen the typical countenance of the future. Should there be a classic period to art hereafter, its fadias may produce such faces. The view of life as a thing to be put up with, replacing that zest for existence which was so intense in early civilizations, must ultimately enter so thoroughly into the constitution of the advanced races that its facial expression will become accepted as a new artistic departure. People already feel that a man who lives without disturbing a curve of feature or setting a mark of mental concern anywhere upon himself is too far removed from modern perceptiveness to be a modern type. Physically beautiful men the glory of the race when it was young, are almost an anachronism now, and we may wonder whether, at some time or other, physically beautiful women may not be an anachronism likewise. The truth seems to be that a long line of disillusive centuries has permanently displaced the Hellenic idea of life, or whatever it may be called. What the Greeks only suspected, we know well. What their Aeschylus imagined, our nursery children feel. That old-fashioned reveling in the general situation grows less and less possible as we uncover the defects of natural laws and see the quandary that man is in by their operation. The lineaments which will get embodied in ideals based upon this new recognition will probably be akin to those of Yobright. The observer's eye was arrested not by his face as a picture, but by his face as a page, not by what it was, but by what it recorded. His features were attractive in the light of symbols, as sounds intrinsically common become attractive in language, and as shapes intrinsically simple become interesting in writing. He had been a lad of whom something was expected. Beyond this, all had been chaos. That he would be successful in an original way, or that he would go to the dogs in an original way, seemed equally probable. The only absolute certainty about him was that he would not stand still in the circumstances amid which he was born. Hence, when his name was casually mentioned by neighbouring yeomen, the listener said, Ah, Clem Yobright, what's he doing now? When the instinctive question about a person is, what's he doing? It is felt that he will not be found to be, like most of us, doing nothing in particular. There is an indefinite sense that he must be invading some region of singularity, good or bad. The devout hope is that he's doing well. 
The secret faith is that he's making a mess of it. Half a dozen comfortable market men who were habitual callers at the quiet woman as they passed by in their carts were partial to the topic. In fact, though they were not Egdon men, they could hardly avoid it while they sucked their long clay tubes and regarded the heath through the window. Clem had been so inwoven with the heath in his boyhood that hardly anybody could look upon it without thinking of him. So the subject recurred. If he were making a fortune and a name, so much the better for him. If he were making a tragical figure in the world, so much the better for a narrative. The fact was that Yobright's fame had spread to an awkward extent before he left home. It is bad when your fame outruns your means, said the Spanish Jesuit Gracian. At the age of six he had asked a scripture riddle. Who was the first man known to wear breeches? And applause had resounded from the very verge of the heath. At seven he painted the Battle of Waterloo with tiger lily pollen and black currant juice in the absence of watercolours. By the time he reached twelve, he had in this manner been heard of as artist and scholar for at least two miles round. An individual whose fame spreads three or four thousand yards in the time taken by the fame of others similarly situated to travel six or eight hundred must, of necessity, have something in him. Possibly Klim's fame, like Homer's, owed something to the accidents of his situation. Nevertheless, famous he was. He grew up and was helped out in life. That waggery of fate which started Clive as a writing clerk, Gay as a linen draper, Keats as a surgeon, and a thousand others in a thousand other odd ways, banished the wild and ascetic Heath lad to a trade whose sole concern was with the especial symbols of self-indulgence and vainglory. The details of this choice of a business for him it is not necessary to give. At the death of his father, a neighbouring gentleman had kindly undertaken to give the boy a start, and this assumed the form of sending him to Budmouth. Yobright did not wish to go there, but it was the only feasible opening. Thence he went to London, and thence, shortly after, to Paris, where he had remained till now. Something being expected of him, he had not been at home many days before a great curiosity as to why he stayed on so long began to arise in the heath. The natural term of a holiday had passed, yet he still remained. On the Sunday morning, following the week of Thomasin's marriage, a discussion on this subject was in progress at a hair-cutting before Fairway's house. Here the local barbering was always done at this hour on this day, to be followed by the great Sunday wash of the inhabitants at noon, which in its turn was followed by the great Sunday dressing an hour later. On Egdon Heath, Sunday proper did not begin till dinner-time, and even then it was a somewhat battered specimen of the day. 
These Sunday morning haircuttings were performed by Fairway, the victim sitting on a chopping block in front of the house without a coat, and the neighbours gossiping round, idly observing the locks of hair as they rose upon the wind after the snip and flew away out of sight to the four quarters of the heavens. Summer and winter the scene was the same, unless the wind were more than usually blusterous when the stool was shifted a few feet round the corner. To complain of cold in sitting out of doors, hatless and coatless, while Fairway told true stories between the cuts of the scissors, would have been to pronounce yourself no man at once. To flinch, exclaim, or move a muscle of the face at the small stabs under the ear received from those instruments, or at scarifications of the neck by the comb, would have been thought a gross breach of good manners, considering that Fairway did it all for nothing. A bleeding about the pole on Sunday afternoons was amply accounted for by the explanation, oh, I've had my air cut, you know. The conversation on Yobright had been started by a distant view of the young man rambling leisurely across the heath before them. <clears throat> a man who's doing well elsewhere wouldn't bide here two or three weeks for nothing, said Fairway. He's got some project in Zed. Depend upon that. Well, I can't keep a diamond shop here, said Sam. I don't see why he should have had them two heavy boxes home if he hadn't been going to bide. And what there is for him to do here, the Lord in heaven knows. Before many more surmises could be indulged in, Yobright had come near, and seeing the hair-cutting group, he turned aside to join them. Marching up and looking critically at their faces for a moment, he said, without introduction, Now, folks, let me guess what you've been talking about. Aye, sure, if you will, said Sam. About me. Well, well no, it's a thing I shouldn't have dreamed of doing otherwise, said Fairway in a tone of integrity. But since you've named it, Master Yobright, I'll own that we was talking about e. We were wondering what could keep you home here molly harning about when you have made such a worldwide name for yourself in the knick-knack trade. Now, that's the truth of it. I'll tell you, said Yobright, with unexpected earnestness. I'm not sorry to have the opportunity. I've come home because, all things considered, I can be a trifle less useless here than anywhere else. But I have only lately found this out. When I first got away from home, I thought this place was not worth troubling about. I thought our life here was contemptible. To oil your boots instead of blacking them, to dust your coat with a switch instead of a brush, was there ever anything more ridiculous, I said. Oh, so tis, so tis. No, no, you're wrong, it isn't. <clears throat> Beg your pardon, we thought that was your meaning. Well, as my views changed, my course became very depressing. I found I was trying to be like people who had hardly anything in common with myself. I was endeavouring to put off one sort of life for another sort of life, which was not better than the life I had known before. It was simply different. Ooh, true. A sight different, said Fairway. Yes, Paris must be a taking place, said Humphrey. Grand shop windows, trumpets, and drums. 
and here be we out of doors in all winds and weathers. But you mistake me, pleaded Clem. All this was very depressing, but not so depressing as something I next perceived, that my business was the idlest, vainest, most effeminate business that ever a man could be put to. That decided me. I would give it up and try to follow some rational occupation among the people I knew best, and to whom I could be of most use. I have come home, and this is how I mean to carry out my plan. I shall keep a school as near to Egdon as possible, so as to be able to walk over here and have a night school in my mother's house. But I must study a little at first to get properly qualified. Now, neighbours, I must go. And Clem resumed his walk across the heath. Oh, he'll never carry it out in the world, said Fairway. In a few weeks he'll learn to see things otherwise. Tis good-hearted of the young man, said another. But for my part, I think he had better mind his business. End of chapter 1